WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. Live from WDET in Detroit, this is the Metro. I'm Nick Austin. And I'm Tia Graham. And today on the program, we'll learn about the current state of Muslim children in Michigan's foster care system. We'll also take a look at Detroit City Council, which voted 8-1 to approve new district maps. What does this mean for Detroiters? We'll learn more with Bridge Detroit reporter Malachi Barrett. And events are happening at the Car Center. We'll hear from Oliver Raxdale Jr. later on. And WDET is hosting a series of events tracking a big election year here in Michigan. The first one is later this month. All this and more on the Metro, our daily news and culture program, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. That's all next, but first the news from NPR. It's the Metro, a daily news program bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations right here on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin. And I'm Tia Graham. And today on the program, we'll learn about the current state of Muslim children in Michigan's foster care system. And we'll also hear from WDET's Jerome Vaughn about an upcoming event happening later, happening later this month. Yes, and we're also going to get into some really interesting things that are happening out here in the world in terms of arts and culture, as always mentioned. But first, we've got to get into the recent news coming out of Detroit City Council, which voted 8-1 to to approve new district maps. The new maps were necessary as the city charter requires redistricting after the release of new census data every 10 years. To learn more about what the new maps look like and what it means for Detroiters, I'm joined by Malachi Barrett a reporter covering the city for Bridge Detroit. Malachi, welcome to the Metro. Thanks for having me. I don't know, Malachi M and then the Metro M. I might need you to change your name to Nalakai or something to make it a little easier. For For the sake of the listeners. That's the dedication. So before we get into the specifics of the new map, I know it's been quite a process to get to this point. So can you just provide us with an overview of what led to these new maps being approved and uh, how smooth was this process? Yeah, so this is a process that's required by the city charter. Basically, every 10 years, the census takes account of all of the people uh, in the city and across the whole country. And based on that data, the city has to then carve up uh, the city into the seven districts that we have. Um, There's two at-large representatives, and then there's seven representatives who each kind of serve a particular geographic boundary of the city. Um, And these basically... You know, in anticipation of 2025 elections, the Planning Commission drafted some maps at the end of last year and uh, had a fairly quick timeline to approve these. There was some concern about giving candidates enough time to make sure that they live in the district that they'll be running for in those elections, uh, as well as make room for any potential legal challenges that could occur. Folks always have the opportunity to kind of argue whether these maps have disenfranchised them. As we've seen at the state level, there's been uh, quite a bit of action there to redraw legislative maps. Um, And on Tuesday this week, the city council picked uh, from among six options that were drawn uh, for new maps that will take effect after the election. So this basically will take effect in 2026. 
and the map that they ultimately chose was drawn to keep the districts as they are now, uh, as close as possible to the as they are now, to kind of give folks some continuity and not really shake up uh, the neighborhoods that much, although there are some fairly significant changes that uh, people came and advocated at council for. Yeah, and we're going to get into that a little bit. I do appreciate you making the distinction. This has nothing to do with the state house maps and those that are under that lawsuit about whether uh, race uh, improperly was considered in drawing those maps. These are just directly to the city, and it's a process that we have now because we lost population. We used to be an at-large city, right, for a, almost a century until moving to this district model. This is the first time we've had to uh, consider new maps. And ultimately, we did mention there was the eight-to-one vote to approve them. So uh, who dissented and why did they dissent as opposed to everybody else agreeing on these maps in city council? So Councilwoman Angela Whitfield-Calloway, who represents District 2, which is kind of uh, not the most northwest district, but it, it is a, uh, a portion of the city on the northwest side, um, basically west of uh, Woodward, north of Highland Park, kind of extending out to um, Southfield uh, Road there. And uh, she had opposed these maps. She had actually requested another uh, option be drawn kind of in the 11th hour that would keep some communities on the east side of Woodward within her district. There were a number of residents from the Grixdale Farms neighborhood in particular, uh, just on the other side of Palmer Park, who had really uh, felt strongly that moving into District Three would have uh, would negatively affect their efforts to continue the momentum to like redevelop their neighborhood. There were Block Club leaders and mm. CDC folks that have felt that their strong connection and trust in Whitfield Calloway and her staff and the folks at the city that you know work with them on a day to day basis, some of that would be uh, disrupted if they would be moved into a new district. Um, there were also some folks kind of on the southwest part of town, Midwest Hireman neighborhood, that were really pushing to keep continuity of their area as well. They were successful in this. They're going to remain in D6. Um, some of the other map options would have split them among some different districts. And that was kind of the main thing that we heard from folks, that they want that that continuity, that kind of continuation of relationships that they've built in the last you know 10 years or so since these last uh, these current maps that we're using now have been in effect. And they didn't want things to really change up that much. Well, then let's get into it, right? You mentioned what you're hearing from some of the people. Do we have a general idea, general consensus of what the strengths and weaknesses of these new maps are, especially in comparison to what we used to have? Yeah, I would say the strength is, I mean, if you're in District 3 or District 4, your boundaries are going to be getting a little bit bigger. There are going to be more folks that are represented because that's where the population losses were really the steepest. And so the challenge is the the city has to keep the population representation as as equal as possible. You know, there has to be a fairly similar number of folks in each of these districts. Um, That was largely achieved. um, But, uh, you know, D5 got a little bit, you know, it changed a little bit. It it, it extends a little bit further uh, westward and and kind of more north uh, as well. Um, D6 largely remains the same. D7 remains mostly the same. District 1 remains mostly the same. The biggest changes really happened in in D2, uh, D3, and D4. And I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what the actual effect will be once these maps take effect. I think there's a lot of kind of anxiety about what these changes will really mean. Um, but it's it's hard to say because, you know, we're going to have a new city council when these maps take effect. So you may not even have the same council person that you have built that relationship with. These maps are connected to you know, efforts to bring services and and resources, but it all depends on the people that are in place there too. And there's no real guarantee that 
you know, those folks are going to stay in place. Yeah, a couple of things I want to unpack there as we're speaking with Malachi Barrett, who's a reporter for Bridge Detroit, covering the city of Detroit. And uh, you can see a con- comparison of the current maps uh, versus the maps that have been voted on to be approved right over there at Bridge uh, Detroit website. Now, good job on the maps there. I get to kind of just see it all laid out. That does make it easier for me. But when you talk about uh, some of these city council members won't even be um, in office, potentially, when the new maps go into effect. Let's talk about the timing. When will these new maps be going into effect? When's the first time Detroiters will be voting using these maps? So the next round of municipal elections is in 2025. Uh, folks will vote in November for a new city council and a new mayor, and then they'll be seated. They'll take office in January of 2026. So folks will be making their decisions uh, in 2025, uh, but the maps themselves won't actually take effect until 2026, early of that year. One thing that strikes me when we talk about these maps is that we have a situation right now where we did have old maps. They did their thing, and now we have to get new ones because we have less people. While folks are trying to retain so much of what they have, it would seem to me maybe this was an opportunity to do the maps better. It was our first opportunity to redraw the maps. Like I said, the city used to be completely at large. And now I'm hearing from you, people are worried about going into other districts because they won't necessarily have the representation from somebody, their old city council person or something. But even in the district model, right, city council still serves the entire population. So can you help me out with the understanding, like, is it more adversarial now that we've moved in the district model? Was there thought of trying to improve? How are people reacting or thinking about using this as a chance to maybe make progress? I think part of the intent when we changed from an at-large system to a district-based model was that you would have a closer connection to somebody that had more um more stake in, you know, the area surrounding you, that representatives didn't, they weren't responsible for the city at large, that they were responsible for a a particular area. And that allowed them to get, you know, a deeper understanding of what the problems were in those neighborhoods and, you know, uh, provide better connection. Because before you might have to reach out to any one of, you know, nine council members to get your problems addressed, whereas now you have one in your district as well as two at-large members. And that's for better or for worse. I mean, if you uh, have a good relationship with your council member and they're accessible and amenable to hearing your concerns, you know, that works out great. But if they're not, then, you know, people feel as though maybe there's less opportunity to get things done. And we actually did hear some folks say, you know, we'd like to go back to the at-large system. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, see, there you go. That's what we have elections for. So before I let you go, what's next then uh, in this whole process? You mentioned that the first elections will be in 2025. Is it basically easy going now from um, from this movement forward? Do you think these will have any impacts on how council works uh, currently? What are you looking forward to or looking for next uh, with city council? Well, we've got a budget season coming up, and that's a big opportunity for uh, council members to direct funding to their districts or programs that affect their areas. Um, But this will be kind of the last hurrah for those current maps. And I'm interested really to see how neighborhood uh, block clubs and community organizations, CDCs, prepare for these changes. If they're going to start, um, you know, reaching out to people that are, you know, maybe they were on the other side of the district before, but now they're all together. Are they going to use this opportunity to start building relationships? Maybe there will be some challenges. I haven't heard of any kind of legal efforts to, to challenge these maps. I mean, it's it's difficult to say whether those would have any merit because we don't really have the same kinds of like, um, you know, uh, racial issues with these maps. I mean, it's a majority black city. Um, there's not really any district that was like carved out to uh, make it more difficult for uh, black representation in the city. But um, I think there's a lot of questions still. We're going to hear a lot from uh, people at the local level about 
how these changes are going to affect yeah. them. Before I let you go, the most important question. We had an intern here uh, back in the day uh, who I was talking about getting city council, uh, someone who reports on it in. And that intern said, have you ever thought about bringing in that Malachi Barrett? I like <laughs> Malachi. Uh, my question for you, Malachi, uh, for people who, you know, you see it, I could understand that. In a year, in a month, how often do you get the Malachi? Oh, pretty much every time. I mean, I've heard it all. Malachi, yeah. mm. you know, is, is another popular one. Malachi, like phonetically is yeah. what it looks. Yeah. Uh, people on staff call me Malach sometimes or, or Mal. So, yeah, call me whatever you want, but just reach out to me with a story. Hey, we've got I this on the that. record. Call you whatever you want. Malachi <laughs> Barrett, reporter for Malachi. Bridge Detroit, covering the city of Detroit. Thank you for joining us, Malachi. My pleasure to be here. On Thanks, the Metro. Guys. I love that so much. Coming up next, we'll learn more about the foster care system in Michigan and the need for Muslim foster care parents with our own Nargis Rahman. You stay right there for the Metro. Metro on 101.9 WDET, shining light on the corners of Detroit that sometimes remain unseen here in the metro area, southeast Michigan, and bringing you those voices in news, arts, and culture. I'm Nick Austin. And I'm Tia Graham. And hearing Nick say that, I just thought about Lion King. Everything the light touches is ours. So I love that so much. But joining us in studio live right now is WDET's Narcus Rahman, who's been doing reporting. There are hundreds of thousands of kids in foster care uh, across the country. And there's often an effort to place children in families of the same race or that have similar cultural or religious backgrounds. About 240,000 Muslims live in Michigan. And joining us once again to talk a little bit about uh, what's happening right now in our foster care system regarding Muslim children, WDET's Nargis Rahman. Hi, Nargis. Hi. Thank you so much for joining the Metro today and just jumping into things. These are questions that people often don't know to ask, like what's going on in the foster care system, especially for those who uh, are uh, Muslim in faith. So what's going on? So I spoke with Jessica Sweet, who is the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services person who recruits foster care parents. And she says that many Muslim kids end up in non-Muslim homes. And that's because there's not a way for the state to enter that into their system. And there's just not a lot of awareness that this is a problem. Yeah. So basically, the state's not tracking the religious backgrounds of the children who are entering into the system. Yeah, and there's also a lot of Muslims don't realize that there are these uh, Muslim kids that yeah. need homes. Yeah. Okay, so one of the first things there, we talk, you talked a little bit about Jessica Sweet with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. You did have a clip from her who talked a little bit about what's going on right now in the system. Right now, it really is based on the anecdotal information that we're getting, reaching out to county offices and having them hand count this information and send it to us. So when we think about that and we're thinking that, you know, people are going through by hand, counting these things out, putting them out, but they're, you know, written. It's a lot of gaps that are being created right now in that, in that uh, system, especially among Muslim children, especially among foster parents. So what are some things in, uh, that we're seeing right now, especially with associations coming together? Yeah. So in about 2012, there was um, a person named Samina Zahur who heard about this problem at her local sermon at her mosque. And then her friend Rania Shabib 
also was aware about the lack of foster parents. So they came together and they created something called the Muslim Foster Care Association. And they've been trying to ramp up the efforts of raising awareness, but also giving some of these foster kids little things that they can have, such as prayer rugs or a Quran or information about their local Islamic institutions. Um, and then they created that in 2016, and they're just kind of ramping up their efforts now to make that more um, make people more aware about the problem and what to do with that. It was sort of like a grassroots. We would um, do these panel discussions. We'd go to different communities, and then people started saying, "Well, where can we find out more information?" And when I hear that, and I hear just you know people are interested in learning, you're seeing more uh, activity amongst people who want to become parents, who wants to become foster parents and help out. The one thing that I often think about, especially when we talk about faith and Muslim faith, is that not all of um, those who identify as Muslims are necessarily Middle Eastern or maybe, maybe you know, so th- there's this misconception of who's what. So when we think about that and we think about the gaps that are being created, <clears throat> what are some things that people should know about the children, the Muslim children right now that are, are in the system? So some of the kids who are in the system are immigrant children, Mm -hmm. and they don't have next of kin available to pick up the slack if something goes wrong or if a family member dies or something like that happens. And so some of the foster parents that spoke to me who are licensed said a lot of times they not only foster these children, but they also adopt the family and take them in like their own and try to make sure that they don't fall into this problem again. The state is also um, training their own staff to get people up to par with what are some of their needs, such as like providing halal food for the kids or providing people with a, p- a clean place to pray in their homes. So there are non-Muslim parents that are willing to take Muslim kids in as well, but they might not have the knowledge or the tools. So the association is also doing one-on-one trainings with these people to give them a heads up on how to care for those children. There's so much to talk about in this area of foster care. And in Islam, it's part of our faith tradition, but unfortunately it's not something that we're at the forefront of. And we want the Muslim community to be at the forefront of foster care. So when we think of, once again about the Muslim community, that was Sahur speaking. When we think about the Muslim community and the things that she just said, like it's not necessarily something that's in the forefront. It's not something that's being necessarily talked about every single day. So what are some ways that you all are seeing, uh, especially with this organization, but especially being a Muslim woman yourself, what are some things that you're seeing that's moving the needle forward when we're talking about these situations? So in November, the association had their first fundraising banquet and they were able to bring people into a room and say, here are the things that were, you know, the challenges that we're facing. One of those challenges was in 2021, a surge of 200 Afghan uh, unaccompanied minors who didn't have anywhere to go. So the association was able to find spiritual leaders to kind of fill those gaps, not only emotionally filling their cups, but also trying to find independent living situations or more awareness about the situation. And, you know, the association founders know that not everyone can become a foster parent, but they are encouraging people to step in as volunteers and mentors to fill those uh, gaps which is just, once again, an amazing thing that's happening. I know I saw that there were 10 licensed Muslim foster care homes in the state. That's just it throughout the entire state of Michigan. So there's definitely a need for it, and we're seeing uh, the, the the gaps being filled with organizations like the one you just uh, talked about. So, Nargis, thank you so much for joining the Metro. We'll definitely talk to you more in the future about all the things that you're reporting on. So, once again, thank you. Thank you for having me.
This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET, our new show connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, arts, and culture affecting the city and our region. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham for the Metro. Just taking a quick look at the weather today. Today, cloudy, but we'll see peaks of sunshine high around 55 degrees later on. Thursday, tomorrow, highs of 59 degrees. And Saturday, expect rain still Pretty mild, 45 degrees. Your Sunday, 41 degrees. So looking pretty good for the Super Bowl weekend, Nick. Yeah, looking, looking pretty good for all of you who are mad you didn't get to bust out your bikinis and swimwear and summer dresses enough this past summer. You know summer. there are shorts and flip-flops out right now. All right, it's well, Michigan. One place where it's always hot is Texas. And it's some things happening in Texas. That's right. Next month, the Texas state law will empower local police to arrest people suspected of crossing the border illegally. Immigration policy is typically a lot of the federal government, and some sheriffs uh, say that they can't follow the lead of the state. Marfa Public Radio's Travis Burbanick reports. If y'all just want to go up on Bumfield and... A Border Patrol agent comes on the radio in Terrell County Sheriff Thaddeus Cleveland's truck as he heads down a rocky desert road with sweeping views of the southern border in Mexico in the distance. From here, I mean, you, you can see 100 miles to the east and 100 miles to the west and 100 miles to the south. Down at the border, Cleveland hops out of his truck and points out a common spot where people cross the Rio Grande here in the rugged, mountainous Big Bend region of West Texas. They'll walk down in that canyon and then they'll down along the river come up. Cleveland, a former Border Patrol agent himself, says he supports the new law making illegal border crossings a misdemeanor state crime and a felony for a repeat offense. But he says he won't be arresting migrants. We don't have the resources to jail or house people where I can just easily turn them over to Border Patrol. This far-flung desert region of West Texas sees much fewer migrant crossings than South Texas, where tens of thousands of people regularly cross a month. Cleveland argues the new law is more aimed at those parts of the border, but sheriffs across the Texas border, from El Paso to Eagle Pass, the recent epicenter of migrant crossings, say their communities aren't equipped to handle the new law. Ronnie Dodson is the sheriff in the Big Bend's Brewster County. My problem is, in our area, is we don't have no place to put them. He says the cost of jailing and feeding people arrested under the law could quickly add up. I mean, even if we arrest them and put them in jail, most of these folks... I ain't never going to be able to pay a fine. I worry about the burden it's going to put on these counties. That's also a concern next door in Presidio County. We don't have a lot of money. Joe Portillo is the county's top elected official. Once you take someone into custody, it does have a fiscal cost. They need to eat. God forbid one of them needs a doctor. There will be an added cost to the county. Texas officials have allowed local governments to apply for some of a $1.5 billion pot of new state border security funding, but it's not clear how much of that will actually go to offsetting the costs of enforcing the new law. There's some concern among law enforcement about how much leeway they'll have on arresting migrants. A few years ago, lawmakers here banned immigration sanctuary cities and allowed the state attorney general to sue local officials who block the enforcement of certain immigration laws. Skyler Hearn heads the Sheriff's Association of Texas. The way it's written, it applies to immigration law enforcement. And so if you take a stance on this law, should it go into effect of saying I'm not going to do it, then potentially a county could open themselves up to that kind of action from the AG. 
Back on the banks of the Rio Grande, Sheriff Cleveland says the new law won't change his day-to-day much. If I encounter somebody um, that's crossed our border illegally, then the first thing I'll do will be give Border Patrol a call. So while Texas leaders continue to assert more authority over the border than ever, some sheriffs, at least in the state's rural border areas, say they'll leave the job of immigration enforcement to the feds. For NPR News, I'm Travis Bubinick in Marfa, Texas. This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET, and you've heard about WDET's October Switzerland trip. Right now you can sign up to travel with your fellow WDET fans. Just a few spaces remain on the WDET Alpine Lakes and Scenic Trains once-in-a-lifetime experience. Check out the itinerary and book your trip at WDET.org Switzerland. Metro on 1019 WDET. I am Tia Graham here with Nick Austin. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Now, jumping into things, the Car Center in the Park Shelton hosts a wide array of activities and events. And this month in particular, the Car Center is gearing up for so many different things and so many different Black History Month programming. You're going to see Debbie Allen's going to be in this weekend, but there's also a huge lineup of other events happening at the Car Center. Joining the Metro right now is Oliver Ragsdale Jr., the president of the Car Center. Thank you so much for joining the show. It's great to be with you live. And congratulations on your new show to you and Nick. How wonderful. How Thank wonderful. you so much. It's great to have you in studio live as well. We always do the recorder, but today we're talking live. So what can folks expect this weekend from the Car Center? You have a lineup of Black History Month uh, programming. It is um, on fire. Um, you know, we, we are in the business of amplifying Black artistic excellence, and that's what's really happening this weekend. I want to make sure that folks are... Um, uh, clear that all of the activities are actually happening at our new pop-up cultural center in downtown Detroit at 1001 Woodward. Uh, we're in a tremendous partnership with uh, Bedrock Detroit uh, where we're doing about 21 um, events, overseeing 21 wow. events that are happening um, in that space. It's a multidisciplinary space just like us. So we have an art exhibition um, featuring um young people from the city of Detroit, as well as um, established artists. Uh, We tonight, um, Thursday night, we are doing a showcase of Detroit dance uh, from the Greystone um, to where we're having um, six dance companies uh, who will be performing. Uh, That program starts at 530. Uh, Tomorrow night with the Detroit Black Film Festival, uh, there are films being shown. On Saturday afternoon, you can come down and learn all of the different Detroit uh, social dance uh, steps uh, with the guys the and ladies who really um, do it um, all of the time. And then on Sunday, uh, we're doing a uh, tribute to the great Naomi Long Magic, who for a long time was the Poet Laureate uh, here in Detroit and uh, Melba Joyce Board, the um, Kresge uh, eminent artist. Um, is doing has put together a, a program where we're showing a film um, that we produced um, really well done uh, by Lamumba Reynolds, um, who's on our team, and um, then a panel uh, of great uh, people who worked with Naomi over the years. 
which is already enough to even think about for one weekend. That's just this weekend alone. And that's just at that location. Exactly. Just at that location. Which then we have amazing. Debbie Allen coming in. I know, which we've been talking about here for a long time. Debbie Allen is just like, you know, fame, but not just fame. I found out about her through Amistad as well as uh, Grey's Anatomy, of course. Grey's Anatomy. But she's in town to do her first love, which is dance. She's in town for Masterclass. Absolutely. Uh, you know, every summer we do a two-week um, dance intensive that we do a part in partnership with the Debbie Allen Dance Academy uh, in L.A., and uh, we decided to add what we're calling a mini intensive um, into it. So uh, Friday night and all day Saturday, uh, young people are going to have the opportunity to come in and work with master uh, teachers, Christopher Huggins, uh, a former um, principal dancer at Alvin Ailey, and Christopher Nobles, who's a member of has been a member of our team since uh, we began the intensive with Debbie. Um, we'll be teaching, and then Debbie will be in on Saturday afternoon um, to take a look at the young people and then formally doing the auditions um, on Sunday. All of that's happening right here on the Wayne State campus, uh, so we're delighted to be partnering with them. It's so amazing. When I looked up uh, De- Debbie Allen's Dance Academy and I went to the website, one of the, the biggest names I saw there but the, which were a ton of big names, but one of the biggest names I thought was Corbin Blue from High School Musical. And I just thought, if every, everyone knows Corbin Blue, if you know High School Musical, you know Corbin Blue. And that was like a huge thing to see. Like, oh my gosh. That must be generational. It is. It's High School Musical. <laughs> Disney Channel's definitely generational. But if you know, you know. So that was really cool. That was really cool to see. But the, one of the cool things as well that you are doing at the Car Center is the Community Quilt. And you have master quilters there as well to teach folks if they want to learn a little bit more. Give us a, the details. Well, you know, quilting is a, is a very heavy um, African-American tradition um, that uh, has picked up steam over over the years uh, because of the, the women from uh, the G-Quilt, GB Quilt, et cetera. And here in Detroit, we have a, a really large um, quilting population. Um, and so la- uh, about 10 years ago, we created our first community quilt, and we invite uh, invited um, organizations, churches, schools, businesses, families to uh, create patches for it. And we're doing that again this year as part of the Bedrock um, uh, Celebrating Black Arts Project. So on Saturdays, if you don't know how to quilt, uh, you can come down to uh, 1001 Woodward, uh, and we have four or five master quilters who are there to help you uh, create a patch, or we invite you just to submit a patch. You can um, send it to to uh, the Car Center, and you can get the information at our website, thecarcenter.org. Uh, the patches are six and a half inches um, in a square, and uh, then they're all going to be uh, quilted together into a large community quilt that we will display um, later this year. And I think about the Car Center at Park Shelton, inside <laughs> the Park Shelton. What can we expect coming from the car center? Well, in the, in the Park Shelton um, galleries, uh, we will have we have two exhibitions, um, as I see and uh, black. And um, on Saturday evening, uh, we're doing uh, poetry from six thirty to ten o'clock. Um, from artists who are inspired or participating in the Black Exhibition. Um, that location is at 15 East Kirby. Um, the exhibit is open. It's a, the, the hours have been a little bit um, erratic, um, so you can just check um, before you stop in and um, uh, come in and see the two exhibitions uh, in that space. They will be there until February the 29th. 
I want to say thank you to Oliver Ragsdale Jr., who is the president of the Car Center, for coming in to the Metro and giving us the rundown about what's happening with the Car Center this weekend with the collaboration with Bedrock, Debbie Allen, The Quilt, so many different things. We're going to stay up to date with uh, Oliver Ragsdale Jr. and the Car Center as we move forward with the show. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's great to be with you in person. Yes. And congratulations to you, too. Thank you. And thank you. You know, in that conversation, you're mentioning Poet Laureate. I want to take a moment to bring up that Detroit, City of Detroit, has announced the creation and seeking nominations for Detroit Poet and Composer Laureates. Uh, Applications are still available. They can be taken up until March 15th of this year. And uh, qualified applicants will have 10 years experience creating poetry or music composition. I don't have 10 years experience. I'm not eligible. You're not a slam poet? Well, definitely not that. Okay. Unless you give me the djembe. You give me the djembe, maybe we can do something. All right. I'm here for that. You know, that's all right, though. But if you are qualified, get involved. Email Lacey.Holmes at DetroitMI.gov. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to bringing you more of the Metro. WDET News Director Jerome Vaughn will join us next as you are listening to the Metro. Metro. I'm Tia Graham here with Nick Austin on 1019 WDETFM. And we are joined in studio right now by our fearless news leader, Jerome Vaughn. Nick, what are you guys going to talk about? Well, we're beginning a big election year here in Michigan, not only in the state, of course, nationwide. And there will be a lot to keep track of, starting with the primary elections that are going down this month, February 27th, to be specific, and going through the general election all the way up until November 5th. But here on the Metro and in the WDET newsroom, we will have you covered. Jerome Vaughn is WDET's news director, and he's here to let us know what the newsroom is doing to keep an eye on the election this year. Jerome, thanks for joining us on the Metro. Where else would I be this time of the morning? Uh, Nowhere. You'd be down the hall, like 50 feet. So it was pretty easy to get you in here. So I appreciate you taking the time because I know being a news director is busy. I see you running around a lot, especially with the moved up primary here in Michigan. So let us know for you, especially as that changes up the the rhythm a little bit. What is our newsroom? What are you focused on most here with this uh, primary coming up? Wow, there are a lot of things with this uh, early primary. Uh, The team is looking at different stories. Uh, One of the first ones is about how impactful is this early primary? I think when we first started putting story ideas together, we thought there'd be more competition in this early process. So we're going to look at, hey, is this early primary going to make a difference? The other thing that's really important is Voter participation, right? Early voting is going to be part of this uh, election round. Uh, Are people uh, going to feel confident in having their votes counted? That's something that's come from the past few years. So those are all subjects we're going to be looking at, as well as uh, a bit about who the candidates are and what they might be doing for Michigan. 
and what some of the key issues are going to be. Well, this is a situation where, again, most people think uh, the nominees are predetermined. They feel like Biden's going to take the Democratic nomination. Trump's running away currently with the Republican nomination. So you reference maybe Michigan has a lesser place now, but historically we weren't that far up in primary votes. You've been covering this stuff for a long time in the state. Are you noticing anything different as a result of the moved up primary and this unique situation? How would you compare it to your experiences in the past? I would say, to be honest, not a lot different at this point, right? Uh, Iowa and New Hampshire still gained a lot of traction early on, even though they weren't official contests in the early days. South Carolina, uh, which is coming up, we're really uh, expecting to see how that's going to go. So, you know, I haven't seen a lot of difference. I think early on we thought candidates would be coming through the state much more often, uh, really uh, looking for votes. President Biden has been here and made a trip uh, just several days ago talking to voters and talking to the UAW. So um, I, I think we expected more of that. And I think we'll see more of that probably going forward into the November election. Yeah, there's going to be an opportunity for interacting here, public interaction with us at an event that we have scheduled. I want to get into that with you in a bit, Jerome. But before I do that, you know, when it comes to national elections, they're the big ones. People realize Michigan's very important. Detroit is very important. Metro Detroit is very important. A lot of news out there, though, in a lot of different places. But we have our own newsroom here. We do things the way that you set forth for us to do it. So for people listening, what do you think is the difference? What's the value that you get from getting your news on a national election where you can get somewhere else instead getting it here at WDET? Wow, that's an excellent question, Nick. I, I think really, you know, Detroit, Metro Detroit is at the center of what we do. And so we're looking at it through that lens. How is this election, this primary election going to affect uh, folks in Michigan. How does Michigan affect the primary election with that specific geographical lens? Uh, that's important. We're looking at issues that are important to Metro Detroiters. Everybody's interested in inflation. Everybody's interested in the economy. But there are some bits of that that are very uniquely Detroit, and those are things we want to peel off. Yeah. Any examples of what's uniquely Detroit that you're aware of? Well, you know, one of the things is electric vehicles, right? Yeah. That's something that is going on. The research is happening here uh, just down the street from us. Ford has, you know, its headquarters, and they're figuring out what's going on. GM yeah. is just down the street as well. Those are things that are going to impact folks in Metro Detroit. Yeah, tell me about Smart Politics, an election discussion hosted by WDET News Director Jerome Vaughn. Hey, that's you. Um, I certainly hope that's me. I, <laughs> it's going I down February 19th, February 19th, 7 p.m. at Hopcat Detroit. Um, but what's supposed to happen there? Why would I want to go to that event? Well, you would want to go to that because uh, you'll be able to sit and listen to me talk uh, for I'm, a little while I'm doing about that politics. Right now. I'll buy you a beer. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, we're going to have three journalists come in. I'll be talking with them. Uh, Clara Hendrickson from the Free Press, Craig Mogger from the Detroit News, Colin Jackson from the Michigan Public Radio Network. And we're just really going to sit and talk about uh, where the political world is, Michigan-wise, leading up to this presidential primary. We'll give uh, people in the audience a chance to ask questions and have those questions answered all in a very relaxed setting, right? It's not like we're going to be on a stage and there's going to be a huge auditorium. It's just going to be really intimate and relaxed, and that's an unusual uh, opportunity. 
Hey, Jerome. Uh, so my question here, I saw some of the names. I saw Colin Jackson. I saw Clara Hendrickson. I, I think about the age and the generational age there and trying to bring in younger voters or just younger people in general. What are some of the ways that you all are using this event to bring in younger uh, voters? Well, this first one, this is going to be the first in a series of events, yeah. right? The idea is to have some engagement, right? To, to sit and talk with people who are interested or curious about politics yeah. and not in the traditional ways of, well, so-and-so is up by 5%, so-and-so is down by 5%, but what are really the issues and the things that people want to know? I mean, maybe that's about how do I get my vote counted? Maybe that's about, well, how is what's going on in the state capitol affecting what's going to happen uh, in the presidential primary? Because there's a lot going on. If you look at uh, the Michigan GOP, all sorts of battles internally going on there. How's that? going to affect the primary there are a lot of issues uh, and we're trying to tackle as many of them as we can again that smart politics event and election discussion hosted by wdet news director jerome vaughn is happening february 19th at 7 p.m at hopcat detroit jerome thanks for joining us on the metro glad to be here anytime long live and prosper This is the Metro on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. And, you know, I was thinking about what Jerome was talking about. Nick and Jerome were talking about Hopcat and thinking about beer. And on this day in 1985, Strolls closed its Detroit factory. It was the largest brewery in Detroit and the third largest in the country. I'm hot, I'm hungry, and I'm thirsty. We just might be able to help you out. Come on, we'll show you how a good time goes. We're going to a place where they talk Strohs. Cause a good time's better with a good time beer. And Strohs is smoking here. Strohs, fireproof, smooth, consistent taste. Now you're talking beer. A good time's better with a good time beer. And Strohs is smoking here. We just played a commercial from 1987 touting the brand's fire brewing method. But the company started in 1850. Bernard Stroh immigrated from Germany, bringing with him a history of brewing and a passed-down family recipe. Strohs began by pushing his beers in a wheelbarrow and selling door-to-door. Success allowed the business to keep expanding and build a factory on the city's east side. By the 1900s, Strohs was Detroit's brewing powerhouse, producing 300,000 barrels a year. In 1920, Prohibition brought about a name change to Stroh's products uh, products company and more non-alcoholic items to make it through the dry years. They made ice cream, malt syrups, and a line of pop flavors. The ice cream is amazing, by the way. Another Prohibition product was a non-alcoholic beer, often called near beer. Once Prohibition ended in 1933, they were back in business, making a fast transition back to brewing the strong stuff. That's a sehr gut. Things were going well for the company until they found themselves in, well, some deep schlitz. Trying to grow on a large scale and battle with beer big boys, they bought out a couple competitors, including Schlitz. That acquisition made Stroh's the third largest brewer, but it was purchased with money they didn't have. Uh-oh. So, the company sold its brands to Pabst and Miller, and Stroh's is still being brewed by Pabst, but good luck finding a cold Schlitz to drink. <laughs> It is-
is the Metro on 1019 WDET, where today, cloudy, 45 degrees in the Cass Corridor, high of 55 degrees later today with 16 mile per hour gust winds. For you sailors out there, we are hanging out with you. We've got a lot of great music that's going to be coming your way. In fact, one of the shows, one of the hosts that we have is Shigeto, and uh, he's going to be performing, actually. You can hear him live at Spotlight along with Mark DeClive Lowe and Tammy Lackis. That's going down on Friday. Looking forward to that. Shigeto's show is on Saturday nights at 8 as well. So a lot of opportunities for you to see and listen to music, especially from someone who's championing underrepresented artists and independent music like Shigeto is. And you know what else, Tia? What? Took my spot. I know, you know, I was, we talked about that a little bit the other day, and I said, you know what, you're right, but if anyone's going to take your if spot. If anyone's going to take your spot, Shigetto. have it be Shigetto, right? I mean, and I'm, I'm, I was looking at the Spotlight rundown, I'm like, I don't know, I might have to be tired it's at Spotlight good. Friday, because pretty good. that lineup is really good. I've already seen Tammy live, she's yeah. amazing live, so I would love to see Shigetto live as well, as well as uh, the other individuals. It's hard to see Mark DeClive uh, Mark low DeClive, as much yeah. over here, so I'm really looking forward to that, so yeah. that's something that uh, I got to make sure to make my way to. Oh, also, but we're so, old people, yeah. so I mean, I'm asleep by like 10 o'clock, so that might be a little late. You could nap early. Uh, you get out of this show, maybe duck out to the couch. Yeah. I know where one's hitting uh-huh. at the station. Okay, let me know. Catch an hour or two, get uh-huh. a couple of winks, get that second run in you. You're going to be good to go. Good to go. It's a professional move. That's a veteran <laughs> move that you learn. Stick with me, Tia. I will give you all the secrets and tricks. <laughs> And this is the Metro on 1019 WDETFM. We'll be right back to learn more about our new music programming. Welcome back to the Metro on 1019 WDET. I am Tia Graham and Nick. Um, what new music show is debuting today? We have a lineup. Today is Thursday. Who's on Thursday? That's right. Each day here, Monday through Friday, 8 p.m., you can get some music here locally. And the show that we have coming up for you is not so new to longtime WDET music fans out there. And Delisi sat down with Liz Warner to talk about her new show, Alternate Take. Lacey sitting here with my good friend Liz Warner. How are you? Hey, how are you? It's always a pleasure to be on air with you. So thank you, Anne. Oh my gosh, it is my pleasure and um, an even bigger pleasure to announce your new show that you're coming back to WDET, where you belong, by the way. Oh. And so it's this week. Tell us when. Tell us the name of the show. Yeah, well, the show is Alternate Take. Mm-hmm. And that is the show name that I had at the end of my first run here right. on WDET. Mm-hmm. So for listeners who, who might be listening, they're thinking, who, who is Liz Warner? What's going on? I used to be known as Liz Copeland. Right. So I was on <laughs> in the middle of the night when you were sleeping. That's okay. That's all right. But I a lot of people weren't. That's well, the thing. Maybe that's true. And in, in a certain regard, there's a generation of, of, of friends out there that were listening then, and they are, would probably not be up now at midnight. Mm-hmm. And they're basically, you know, just 8 o'clock is the new midnight, mm-hmm. you know, and it works. Thursdays yep. at 8 o'clock. That's when I'll be on. So it's two hours each week, a little bit different than the 25 hours that I had, you know, previously. But, hey, we're going to make it work. We're going to we're going to do a lot in those two hours. 
Um, and this show is going to be one of the best things that ever happened to DET. I've always been a fan, so I'm really excited that you're going to be here. Um, and so you have music to share. And so I said to Liz, what do you want to start with? And she goes, cue up this song. I'm like, this is one of my favorite songs ever. Yeah. And um, the Poolside's come into town, by the way. Yeah, Poolside. Um, they're, they're, real, they're really fun and amazing. And mm-hmm. I've been in Los Angeles for the past seven years, and I've been absorbing the vibes out there. Right. And um, or not the last seven years, but let's say for seven years before the last couple of years, whatever, mm-hmm. you get it. And and there was a lot to take in. Poolside kind of embodies that feeling of Los Angeles, of California. No question. The, the carefree everything. They put out a cover version of Harvest Moon by Neil Young. And at first, when I played it out, because I've played it out as well, mm-hmm. a lot of people are like, wait a minute. I know this. <laughs> I know. Wait, wait. Wait, do I? Oh my, what? And then all of a sudden <laughs> so people, good. you know, people have danced to it, people are just mm-hmm. grooving to it. It just kind of like rides that line of of just kind of chilling with it mm-hmm. or maybe just getting up on the on the dance floor. And it, it is one of those examples of a brilliant cover because yes. you that's so hard to do. So hard yeah. to do, especially if you're going to try to even attempt to transform it. Mm-hmm. But it's done so very well. So this was a little bit of a um a bold entrance for Poolside, if you mm-hmm. will. And then a lot of a lot more people started paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. So they've been putting out records. I think they're on their fifth now. Mm-hmm. And uh, a tour yeah. is happening. Poolside is coming to Detroit, coming yeah. up in um, next weekend, actually, mm-hmm. next Saturday. It's coming up fast. But I think we should actually just, before I talk about it anymore, because <laughs> let's just listen to it, because that, that's why we're here. So let, let's listen to this to this song. I hope everyone else enjoys it as much as we, we have. The incredible Liz Warner back at WDET, an alternate take. You can hear it right here every Thursday at 8 p.m. Going from 8 to 10. Looking forward to that. Tia. Coming up at noon in the groove with Ryan Patrick Cooper. Ryan, what's groovy today? Hey, guys. Um, well, yesterday we did this insane blowout Jay Dilla celebration, which was amazing. And the amount of love and response we got from that, people saying, wow, OK, WDET sounding like Detroit. I'm loving the new music programming. I'm so excited for Liz tonight and today on In the Groove at Noon. We're going to cover so much ground. I've got Robert Glasper. I've got this young rapper coming out of Detroit, Jayton. Incredible. This, this guy's blowing my mind. Super young, super talented. The next one up, I think, in Detroit's coveted rap scene. That's all ahead on In the Groove with me, Ryan Patrick Cooper. With me, Ryan. At ba- noon. I thought you were going to do like a, a third person, like, you know, but hey, you know. <laughs> Ryan doesn't talk in third person. <laughs> Saw that one. In the Groove, weekdays, noon to three, and available on WDET.org with Ryan Patrick Hoover. That's the Metro for Thursday, February 8th. You can listen to recent episodes online at WDET.org. And make sure to, to describe... 
subscribe to the podcast on your favorite you platform. Describe it you can describe it You can describe it too. Describe it too. We want the you to show, let them know. <laughs> the show is produced by Sam Corey, David Lyons, and Jack Philbrandt with reporting from Nargis Rahman today. Our technical director is Nate Bender. Music by Sam Bobian. And our news director is Jerome Vaughn. And program director is Adam Fox. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University. If you like what you hear and want to support the Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org slash donate. You're listening to 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit Public Radio. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.